This is Daniel Fagella, Head of Research at Emerge Artificial Intelligence Research. You're listening to the AI and Business Podcast. Over the years, we've covered many use cases here on the show. This is a show specifically for leaders, not the people that write the Python code, but the people who need to decide on AI strategy, who need to transform their organizations, or who are working as a consultant or service provider to help transform other organizations. This is for strategists, ultimately. And when it comes to strategy, sometimes it makes sense to zoom up one or two more levels and get a sense of the big trends that are going to be changing specific industries. This week, we talked to someone who is particularly adept in this particular category. Many of you have read the books by our author, Martin Ford. Martin Ford is the New York Times bestselling author of Rise of the Robots, the 2015 book. We had interviewed Martin some six years ago when that book initially came out. He was a great guest back then talking about some of the elements of white-collar job automation. And his most recent book is called Rule of the Robots, published conveniently six years after his book Rise of the Robots, and there were a few in between. And in this book, Martin's specific focus, after interviewing many of AI's greatest luminaries, is where AI is going to change day-to-day life, business, and society. I drill down deep with Martin in this episode on the meta trends that he believes are most important for business leaders. So when it comes to where AI is going to shift business, allow for new business advantages or allow for new efficiencies, what are the meta trends that he's seeing as a futurist and an author uh, that should be important for the C-suite and the listeners that we have here on the AI and Business Podcast? That was the question, and Martin certainly delivered. It's a real pleasure to be able to have him back on the show some six years after meeting him the first time, and I suspect you won't be disappointed with the meat and potatoes of this episode. There's a lot of fun to dig into, so I appreciate Martin joining us. If you're interested in finding AI trends in your specific industry or sector, be sure to download our free PDF brief called Three Ways to Discover AI Trends in Your Industry. You can find that at emerj.com slash T3. That's T as in trends and then the number three, emerj.com slash T3. And you can download our free PDF brief called Three Ways to Detect AI Trends in Your Industry. Those are some of our rules of thumb as a market research firm for finding useful use cases that are emerging in new sectors. And I hope you'll find it useful and a useful addition to the insights in this episode. Without further ado, let's fly right in. This is New York Times bestselling author Martin Ford here on the AI and Business Podcast. So, Martin, I'm glad to have you back on the show. It's been half a decade, very kind of wild to think about how time has flown. And we talked a bit about job automation the last time you were here. You're in a unique position studying the big picture around the future of the job market and the economy. Our audience is executives who are uh, very much interested in what jobs might be automated or or how the wave of AI is going to impact the job market. What are some of the high-level ahas that you really think enterprise leaders need to understand based on your research for this latest book? Well, first of all, I think that the trend to more automation, using more technology to displace labor is is really continuing relentlessly. Um, I mean, if you look at the economic data, that's not always obvious. In 2019, obviously, we had historically low unemployment in terms of the headline unemployment. So, you know, people might look at that and say, well, what's what's going on? We're not really seeing this trend toward automation. But in fact, if you look at, for example, at the labor force participation rate, more and more people are dropping out of the workforce. So, um, 
people that leave entirely are not captured. So I do think that, you know, and we're seeing overall higher levels of inequality, people being left behind and so forth. So I do think that in terms of the macro trend, it is continuing. And we're seeing lots of progress on both the white collar side in terms of knowledge-based jobs and manipulative jobs. You know, artificial intelligence has advanced quite dramatically since I wrote my first book, especially in the area of deep learning and deploying all of that. And so we're beginning to see the beginnings of, of robots, for example, that are approaching, getting closer to human level dexterity. We're still not there yet, but we're definitely getting much closer. And I think that's going to have a huge impact in a lot of environments. And of course, the same is happening on the white collar side, where you're seeing artificial intelligence being deployed in more and more places, some in, in surprising places. One thing you always hear people say is that if you want a safe job, learn to code. And yet we're, we're clearly seeing movement toward automating basic computer programming. You know, OpenAI just released a product they're calling Codex, which uses their GPT-3 system and is really quite remarkable in its ability to write computer code. So I think we're, we're seeing progress across the board and it's really going to be relentless. I, well, I, no one's going to argue there. So we'll get down to some, some particulars and, and as you mentioned, you've been writing about this for quite some time. I think it was your your first AI specific book when we had chatted the last time, hadn't even been out maybe for a year when we had that conversation. And since that time, you and I have both you know looked at the market and maybe there were some things we were very excited about that have not really arrived in terms of AI's impact and automation. And maybe there's other areas where we're seeing some surprising, interesting progress. You know, the the coding from from OpenAI, of course, that hasn't really hit the market yet. So it's important to have on the radar, but it's it's not necessarily scooping up jobs today. When you look over the last half a decade at the things that have been kind of underwhelming in terms of AI progress for you on automation and the things that have really kind of surprised you, that have really taken off and, and in terms of real adoption, what are some of those, those underperformers and, and overperformers? Well, the underperformers, I think, are very often in the areas that are the most overhyped. You know, the, the areas that really get the most attention are the ones that sometimes fall short. And certainly right at the top of the list, there is self-driving cars, right? I mean, uh, self-driving cars really got their start back in 2010 when Google put their first model out. And people back then were saying that within five years, you know, we were going to have these fully autonomous cars on the road. And that Projection has just been pushed back again and again. And the latest hype is really coming from Tesla. Uh, Elon Musk, you know, he's pre-selling this system which purports to be fully self-driving, level four or level five autonomy. He's, he sold that to uh, his customers with the promise that at some point there's going to be a software download and their car will, you know, be a robo-taxi. And uh, I just think that that's really quite unrealistic. I don't think we're going to see that for some time to come. So, you know, self-driving cars are are definitely going to arrive, but I really think it could take a decade or more. And the reason is that it's really in the edge cases, right? You can build a self-driving car that is maybe 99% effective, that works 99% of the time, but that's that last 1% is is going to kill you, right? Because it if literally you multiply, you. yeah. Yeah, literally, because I mean, especially when you a 1% failure rate multiplied across thousands and thousands of cars on the road is, is you know, a disaster. So that's one area where you're certainly going to see uh, an underperformance. The other area is you see this focus on humanoid robots or general purpose robots, like, like a robot for your home that can do lots of useful things and so forth. And again, this is just an extraordinarily difficult challenge, you know, replicating 
human dexterity, human hand-eye coordination, human mobility um, in a way that, that can produce a truly useful robot that you would pay a lot of money to have around to do things. It's just a staggering challenge, and, and we're really not close to that. I think most people have seen the, the videos from Boston Dynamics, right? The, the sure. company that makes these yeah. very impressive spot the robot. And this company has worked for years and years just to get robots basically to walk and maybe sometimes to run and dance. And that's amazing progress, but that's really basically all they do. I mean, you know, these are not robots that you can ask to do something genuinely useful for the most part. Yeah, I mean, make, a, make some, a sandwich or clean your dishes. Right, right. We're, in terms of that type of dexterity, we're nothing close to that. Which, he, And again, you know, Elon Musk is kind of leading the charge on, on overhyping things. I mean, just a couple of weeks ago, <laughs> he had an event uh, where he announced the new Tesla robot. He actually had a guy dancing around in a robot suit, you know, and I guess maybe it was is more publicity stunt, but he did say that Tesla would have a prototype within a year of a robot that he said you would be able to say to it, go to the store and buy me some items. And it would do that. And, 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 and this is just, you know, insane, right. In terms of what, <laughs> What is is even remotely reasonable? So so I mean he's really pushing the envelope there. Both you know, yeah. Tell us how you really so, feel, Martin. Yeah. So so <laughs> I mean those are the kinds of things that really raise expectations beyond on any unreasonable level. Okay, that kind of stuff is is not coming. What is coming is the deployment of more specialized robots in controlled environments. And and the best example I can give of that is what's happening already in Amazon warehouses. So in those facilities, you've got already tens of thousands of robots. And what the robots do is they mostly move materials around. So for example, the robots in an Amazon warehouse will bring a shelf of inventory to a worker and the worker will then stow items on that shelf or pick items from that shelf in order to fill an order for the customer. And the reason you've got lots of robots and also a huge numbers of, of human beings in these facilities is, of course, that the robots, once again, cannot yet do things that require that human level dexterity and hand-eye coordination and visual perception. And, and for example, picking an item, and there are many, many thousands of different items, shapes and sizes and weights and textures and so forth that a human being has to deal with, you know, to grab that item off a shelf and, and put it in a box is not yet something that a robot can do. Um, however, that is definitely going to change. Um, and, you know, there's a huge amount of effort being put into that. Uh, Amazon is working on it. Other big companies are working on it. There are lots of startups in Silicon Valley, uh, companies like Vicarious uh, and so forth that are really focused on building more dexterous robots. Jeff Bezos said uh, a couple of years ago that he thought the problem of grasping robotic grasping would be solved in about 10 years. In other words, within 10 years, yeah, he's yeah. expecting there will be robotic manipulation that comes more or less close to, to matching human dexterity. And at that point, Amazon warehouses are probably going to look entirely different. And that's going to be an enormous number of jobs that are basically going to disappear. And of course, you're going to see the same thing happening in fast food restaurants and supermarkets and other environments as these robots get more capable. Let me, if, if you don't mind, uh, Martin, I'd love to see if I can grab some takeaways. You're bringing some really great examples. And I know we have business listeners, some of whom are in banking, some of whom are in life sciences, some of whom are in retail. I'm thinking about kind of the concepts here 
And I want to know if you'd agree with these for take-home lessons, because I want people to be able to benefit from your your wisdom and all the research that went into this latest book. Kind of feels like if our physical robotic systems, and we're about to talk about more white-collar jobs in a moment, but if our physical robotic systems require really robust dexterity, then we may not have the right use case, and we may be underwhelmed, as you've put it, if they involve a very bounded space, a very controlled environment and ecosystem, like a warehouse where it's not like a street where we got dogs running across the street and we've got snow falling down. You know, a warehouse is very controlled, then maybe maybe we're we're in a better spot. And the other note that you've brought up here that I think might be a transferable lesson, but I want to make sure that you can add to this for the audience, is that if a you know if a one in a hundred thousand percent error is enough to make the whole technology dangerous, then maybe we're going to be underwhelmed. You know, as you mentioned, let's just say Amazon's robots in the warehouse drop one out of every 20,000 boxes or something, right? Now, that's not great. However, I don't really know what their current drop rates are. I don't even know if they track such a thing. But frankly, I think that they could still run a warehouse, all, all things considered. If one in every 20 times you turn at a stoplight, you know, your autonomous vehicle doesn't quite work correctly, that's not going to work. So it sort of feels like the requirement for perfection is another factor that can make something overwhelming because or underwhelming. Because if, if you really require perfection, AI might not be the best tool. Is, is there a different way you would word this for business people who want to think about their own processes? Well, I think you've definitely honed on the most important point there, which is that for the foreseeable future, you know, AI and, and robotics is going to excel in controlled environments. So again, going back to that Amazon warehouse, Amazon controls the workflow. Amazon can separate the robots from the people, which they do very carefully to make sure that there aren't any collisions or accidents. And they can also route around errors, right? So if you think about it, from the moment you place an order with Amazon, of course, Amazon knows exactly what items are in that order. And what that means is that when they send that order to a warehouse to be processed, they know in advance if there are going to be items in that order, for example, that a, a robot will have difficulty dealing with. And then they can simply route that order around the robot and say, well, we need this particular order to be handled by a person. So they can they can deal with all of that sort of in advance. So it's, it, the essence of it is that it's a very, very controlled environment where they really have an incredible degree of, of influence over exactly the way things pan out. And the other thing, of course, is, as you mentioned, the stakes are much lower. You know, I mean, if somebody gets the wrong item in their order, that's that's not, you know, someone getting run over by a self-driving car, right? It's, it's way different. You know, there's no lives at stake. So generally, you're going to see controlled environments where the stakes are lower are going to be the places where AI and robotics really excel. But out on public roads where it's completely unpredictable, you have absolutely no control whatsoever. And where the stakes can literally be life and death, I think that is going to be much harder. And of course, in environments like that, they also will come naturally with more regulation, right? More hurdles in terms of getting government approval. Amazon doesn't need any regulatory approval for anything it does inside no, its warehouses, no, right? No, no, it has yeah. total control over that. But anything you're going to do out in the real world that can potentially be dangerous, I mean, it's an entirely different story. So you can see right there how you're just going to see dramatically different levels of progress in, in these two different spheres. Great. So yeah, th these are the reason I like uh, your, your clarity there, uh, Martin, is because again, the business leaders tuned in are going to think about their own processes that might be physical processes and say, okay, which of these in the next five years might 
be on our roadmap to totally automate or partially automate, and which of these should safely kind of stay in the realm of humans. And I think you've done a good job drawing that uh, those sort of dividing lines. If you don't mind, I'd love to talk a bit on the white collar side as well, because there's probably some overwhelming and some or some some underwhelming and overwhelming uh, examples there where certain kinds of white collar tasks maybe are not being automated, and, and maybe some are. Share a little bit of your thoughts in terms of what are important trends on more of the white collar side for you. Right. So just one general thought is that, in, you know, I've always kind of argued that generally white collar knowledge-based jobs where you're essentially manipulating information are going to be easier and less expensive to automate than a lot of manual jobs. Because as we've been saying, there are real challenges in terms of robotic dexterity, uh, hand-eye coordination, and it's very expensive to build these technologies. When you're dealing with software automation, you, you're just you know, you only need software. You don't need any of that expensive mechanical stuff. It's just a matter of looking at information. And in general, there are exceptions, but in general, once again, the stakes are lower, right? If you're not physically manipulating the environment, then in most cases, you know, you're, you're not doing something that's, that's going to be inherently dangerous, right? That's going to put lives at risk. So if you're just talking about automating some, you know, tasks or, or a job done by some person sitting in a cubicle somewhere in a big office environment that really, for the most part, again, with exceptions, is not going to put someone's life at immediate risk or anything like that. So the stakes are lower, the cost may be lower, it's generally going to be easier to do. So what we see is that it's really progressing across the board. The general theme is that, you know, work that is fundamentally predictable on some level routine is going to be a lot easier to automate than work that is, for example, inherently creative or involves thinking outside of the box and so forth. So it's really those kind of more routine white collar jobs that are going to be first to go. But that is a significant number of jobs. I mean, if you're sitting in front of a laptop and you're essentially generating the same type of report or analysis or presentation over and over, you know, these are jobs that are going to be very easily to automate. And we already see systems that are doing legal contract analysis. We see systems that can write news stories, right, that are getting better and better. The largest media organizations all use systems that can automatically write um, news stories, especially in areas like business reporting, you know, finance, you know, corporate earnings, that kind of thing that's relatively formulaic, as well as sports and so forth. But those systems will get better and better over time. So there, there's a lot of progress in these areas. OpenAI's GPT-3 system, which a lot of people may have heard of, a very powerful natural language system is being used in a lot of these areas because they formulated it as an API, which other, other people can, can use. And so there are a lot of people now using that in different areas and certainly writing corporate reports and, and, and so forth is one area where it's going to get deployed. OpenAI has also got a new tool they call Codex which can actually do a, a remarkable job of writing basic computer software. So even, you know, writing software, writing code is, is not something that is beyond the pale of automation. So we're really going to see this, I think, unfold across the board. Yeah, there's a lot of very tangible examples here. I mean, you know, insurance underwriting or document search and discovery or certain kinds of customer service oriented tasks. I mean, there's so many things that are kind of inherently predictable. I'm going to do my best with you here, Martin, to Try to paint a picture to help our listeners again and think through where those pockets of automation might exist in their own business. You brought up two important points. You know, is the nature of the work kind of inherently predictable? Is it inherently routine? 
if I'm inside of a company, maybe it's a manufacturing firm and I've got plenty of white collar workers, maybe it's a big logistics company somewhere, whatever the case may be, and I'm looking at my own processes, where might I go to kind of hunt and find opportunities? I mean, what might be the, the pair of goggles I want to put on? Right. One of the most important things is that, you know, we talk a lot about automating jobs, but really what this is about is automating tasks. There was a very influential report done by McKinsey, our, our McKinsey Global Institute a while back, which looked at this and found that just in the current world, about 50% of the tasks performed by workers could, in theory, already be automated using existing technology. So um, to a certain extent, you know, there, there's a lot of potential there that hasn't been leveraged yet, right? We don't even, in some sense, need new technology to do this. But it is critical to understand that it's not about a one-to-one -one correspondence between a job that exists now and, and a robot or an algorithm that's going to come in and do that entire job. What it is, is about is a high percentage of the tasks performed by an individual worker are going to be susceptible to automation. So what that means is that in order to take advantage of this, you're going to have to redefine the boundaries between jobs, right? You're not, it's not going to be just leave things as they are. It's going to be reorganize the work, reorganize the way jobs are defined. And of course, once you do that, then there are going to be opportunities for consolidation. So if you've got two workers doing the same kind of job, but each of them, you know, 50% of what they're doing of the 50% of the individual tasks can be automated, then obviously there's an opportunity there to consolidate that into one job and just have one person do the things that can't be automated and let the, the algorithms take care of the other stuff. And that's the kind of approach you're going to have to take. We probably should talk more about automating tasks and less jobs. about automating yep. jobs. Yeah, yeah no, Jobs that's great, yeah. will disappear as a, as a result of you know, reorganization and consolidation. And, and the other point is that as you undertake this process and you consolidate, some jobs will disappear and new jobs will yeah. appear, but they may, those new jobs may require entirely different skill sets, yeah. different talents. In some cases, they might be located in different geographical regions and so forth. So, you know, it is something that is potentially quite disruptive to to an organization to undertake this, right? And, and definitely there are going to be a lot of human resource issues around that that you need to deal with. Big time. And actually, this is kind of the last point I want to get into. Maybe we'll have some final action steps and, and we can wrap up here. But this is you know, incredibly important. Frankly, one of the things I tire of, Martin, is you know when we speak with vendor companies, they're not really allowed to talk about you know in their own self-interest, understandably so. They're not really allowed to talk about the potential for downright automation. And you brought up a great point. Let's think about the automation of tasks more than jobs. It's it's a it's a much more accurate way of thinking about things. But to your point, if half of what we're doing is automatable, then hypothetically, we take the human beings, we need half as many human beings to do the creative stuff. And that's a reality. Vendor companies, as you're well aware, I'm sure you spoke with plenty of them, will always talk about, you know, oh, it's about augmenting people and giving people more fulfilling work to do, right? Vendors can't really go to market Unless they're behind closed doors with somebody who has a real efficiency need where they can kind of talk about it with a wink and a nod, they can't lead in their market message by saying, you can get rid of some darn headcount around here and become more lean and competitive. They can't actually say that. But the possibilities of real deal automation of certain departments within a business are serious. Is there anything that you think business leaders should think about more there? Because I think a lot of folks are believing this kind of pure augmentation message, which is not a bad message, but it's one-sided. I think it's terrible for it to be the only message in the market. How should business leaders think about that balance? 
Right. I think, as you say, you know, companies that are marketing these technologies, it's very difficult for them to put a, you know, a dystopian twist on it, right? So the, the automation issue is, is at least as much, I think, a public policy issue. It's something that ultimately, you know, governments are going to have to also address. But actually, you know, I have seen evidence, and in particular, I read a report that came out by Deloitte a year or two ago, and they actually surveyed executives in, I think it was a pretty high number of executives, like thousands in American companies and also in international companies. And what they came away is that people are definitely very much aware of the potential for automation. Um, I think it was something like 30 or 40% of executives felt that the potential for jobs to be eliminated actually was, was to some extent an ethical issue that they need to be really concerned about. So I do think that the people working in corporations whether they say so publicly, they're very much aware of the potential to eliminate jobs and they're also focused on that. They, they understand that getting rid of, of workers is you know, one of the primary ways they're going to drive efficiency. Um, and there, there have been you know, some that have spoken out. I remember a couple of years ago, the um, CEO of uh, Deutsche Bank, I think it was, said that, that he thought you know, he could get rid of half of his workers. Whoa, so, be careful so I, talking I, like that. <laughs> So I, I don't think this is any secret, you know, I mean, people, people within companies are very much aware of this issue. So it's, it's something that is happening. People understand that it's happening. And I do think that, you know, businesses are going to have to figure out ways to adapt to that change in terms of attempting to help people transition, right? Hopefully, as many of your employees as possible can transition to, to new kinds of work. And not everyone will be able to do that. And that's going to raise issues in terms of having a humane approach to downsizing and so forth. Got it. So it, it almost sounds like there's a bit of a takeaway here based on what you're telling us that if we're among the leadership of, a, of an enterprise firm, we should think, what are the tasks that might be automatable? And then think about if, you know, what is the percent of that task or those sets of tasks that occupy this certain base of workers or level of workers? And what might that imply for our efficiencies, th those might be worthwhile exercises to do as we think about where we want to adapt AI. But then, of course, we also need to think about, okay, how would we repurpose talent when we when we uh, run up against these hurdles? You know, how can we avoid the, the negative PR that might come from these kinds of things? What, what other sorts of advice might you provide to, to business leaders who have to look very squarely at this balance between augmentation and, frankly, uh, straight up automation? Right. I mean, I think the, the points you raise are, are important. I would just say that artificial intelligence is going to be arguably the most important technology that we have. It's going to shape the future. Any business that turns away from it is is making an error of, of the magnitude of disconnecting from the electrical grid. I mean, it, it's simply not an option. And of course, you know, we've talked a lot about increasing efficiency and automating jobs, but there are also other dramatic ways in which AI is going to be a powerful tool for organizations, especially in areas like research and development. I think that it's absolutely going to amplify human creativity. AI is already being used in, in, for example, drug discovery, right? You can use artificial intelligence to search for new molecular configurations. So in life sciences and so forth, it's an extraordinarily powerful tool. So I think I really think across the board, it's a technology that we have to embrace, you know, wholeheartedly. But we definitely do need to focus on the the ethical considerations of it, and the impact on the job market and the economy. And to some extent, those are issues that the government has um, 
the government, right, and, and, and it's a public policy issue we're going to have to deal with. So I think that it's also something that needs to be on the radar there. I'm with you. And I think the the urgency to adopt AI is going to be different depending on size of company. I certainly don't want somebody running a couple shoe stores in Wisconsin to listen to Martin today and think, oh, by golly, I've got to set aside a third of my budget for, uh, you know, paying for different AWS APIs or something. The level of tension for who needs to adopt and when is, is going to vary. But to your point, uh, Martin, this is becoming the, the new electricity. So ignoring these paradigm shifts, if you do want to be in business 10 years from now, is not exactly a safe move to make. So I think that's an, an apt point. Exactly. And it definitely is a technology that's becoming much more accessible. So you mentioned the small business. Maybe right now, you know, investing heavily in artificial intelligence is beyond them. But within a few years, it will become much more accessible. The tools are getting better. It's accessible through cloud computing, which is becoming less and less expensive. You won't necessarily need, you know, people with PhDs in computer science to do this um, because it's going to become much more accessible. You're going to become more like electricity in that sense as well. That's it. Everyone will be able to to leverage this this resource. Yeah, baked into your SaaS products as opposed to an experiment you have to literally run yourself, which is very much outside the pale of most small and, and frankly, many mid-sized uh, businesses. So yeah, certainly keeping an eye out on these technologies becoming more accessible is also handy. So I hope for those of you who are tuned in, uh, some of Martin's ideas around automation, the future of jobs, and some of the ways business leaders need to take that into account will be helpful for you. The book is called The Rule of the Robots. I have it in my bedroom right now. And uh, Martin, I'm glad you and I get to catch up after half a decade. It's uh, been great having you back on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's been really great talking to you again. So that's all for this episode. Thank you for listening all the way through to the end of this episode. And a big thank you to Martin Ford for being able to be with us. It's certainly fun for me sometimes to be able to zoom up and think of things from a big picture perspective and think about how meta trends might manifest in the work that we do and some of the work that we do with the enterprises who we advise. And I hope that that same insight was useful for you. Again, if you're interested in learning more about detecting AI trends, obviously there's a great many articles on trends across industries on Emerge.com, but we have a specific PDF brief about detecting trends, which you can download at emerj.com slash T3. That's T as in trends and then the number three. And that's our free PDF brief called Three Ways to Detect AI Trends in Any Industry. Thanks again for joining us on this episode. Next week, we're going to be talking about AI adoption and how to make it easier. There's a lot of hurdles to adoption, and we're going to focus on how to ease those and how some vendor companies are adjusting their offerings to make AI more palatable for faster adoption.